You may turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where I want to take up a series of messages that I've had for some time now, and every now and then I want to appeal back to them. Jesus, the Son of God, should be the most important object of our study and worship in the New Testament gospel. The summary of our faith, the summary of our religion, the summary of the truth of God is all about the man Christ Jesus. This verse that the church memorized a few weeks ago and that our children memorized with us, we should never forget. And without controversy, this is not up for debate. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed down in the world, received up into glory. Amen. That is a six-point summary of our religion. Right. That is a six-point summary of true Bible Christianity. This sermon was not inspired or planned based on current circumstances in America, but it fits quite well. America is reeling right now by contradictory information and overreaction and underreaction to a pandemic and street riots. In an election year, like I've already said this morning, there are many comparisons made among men, but there is only one man worth knowing. And when I say one man, I mean with a capital M. Right. Just as it is given to us, and we understand in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. And don't forget that fact, that the drama of the universe is about a man that God raised up from among the people, born of Mary, who was a biological daughter of David, presumed to be the son of Joseph, who was the legal father of Jesus and a son of David by a different son, so that Jesus was twice the son of David, legally and biologically. But he was raised up to be the son of God, and he is a man. Jesus is a man. He is God. He is Jehovah, fully unbegotten God, but he's also a man. And we want to remember that about him because the drama is centered on the fact that the devil was able to take our first parents and destroy them in a matter of minutes in the Garden of Eden. But from that woman came the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was able to destroy the works of the devil on the cross of Calvary. And it was a man that could die. God can't die. So he had to give a body to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Never has it been truer than right now. Let God be true, but every man a liar. The name of our website, let God be true, but every man a liar, except for the one man, Jesus. Human promises. Human promises, as I've taught you, are unsure. Human promises are unsure because sometimes those that promise lie. Sometimes they forget. Sometimes when it comes time to pay, they're unwilling to pay. And sometimes when it comes time to pay, they're unable to pay. And those are the four consequences of trusting someone on earth when they make a promise. But all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are in him, yea, and in him, amen under the glory of God by us. So uncertain is your life that you don't know if you will be alive tomorrow. 
Thus a warning in Proverbs 27 and verse 1, make, don't boast of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. All other persons you will ever meet will fail your faith and trust by lack of affection and or ability. If they love you as much as you think they can love you, then they won't be able to do some of the things for you that you need done. And if they're very able to accomplish great things for you in life, they may not love you enough to do them all for you. And so we're always in a dilemma with other people. And I hope that we can trust each other. And I don't mean to undermine that, but there's one that you can trust, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. If he were to fail just you, it would destroy his integrity and person, position, and authority in heaven. He is totally committed to saving every single one that the Father gave to him. Right. He's the surety of our souls, as I'm going to get to in just a moment. And so we can put our trust in him. Jesus is a man, the God-man, as I've said. It is this man that executes God's eternal plan for us and reconciles us to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you read some of those, these verses last evening, hopefully from verse 15 to verse 24. I just want us to look at verses 18 through 20 to get my text back in your minds. It's been three weeks since we were here. 2 Corinthians 1, 18, the Apostle Paul is being questioned and criticized by the church at Corinth because he had said he was going to come to visit them on his way to Macedonia, and he would come back and visit them again on his way out of Macedonia. And he didn't do it because some dire circumstances arose in his life in Ephesus, which he refers to in verses 8 through 10. But in verse 18, he says that he wasn't a yea and nay man, like verse 17 yeah, 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 I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, yeah, yeah. And then, when it comes time to perform, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, we had one recently, that's why we had a quiz here yesterday. Finding fault with no one, but just a change in plans, and a change in plans the last minute, very last minute. And so the Apostle Paul is defending himself in verse 17 against Corinth. Do you think... That I was light, that I was light, my light, that I use lightness when I said to you, I was going to come and visit you? Do you think that I purpose things according to my flesh? I had a real intention to come and visit you. Amen. So don't think evil of me. Corinth always thought evil of Paul. Paul had trouble with Corinth. That's why he was forced to boast. Whenever you read through these two lengthy epistles, you will find him in a number of chapters having to boast to defend himself and his reputation. It was an ungrateful church. But that's a point for another time. Verse 18, but as God is true, our word towards you was not yea and nay. It was not wishy-washy. It was not fickle. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay. But in him was yea. Everything was positive. Everything was certain. Everything was final. Nothing was left up to doubt, probability, or chance. <coughs> The gospel that we three men preached to you when we were there in Corinth was certain, and it was final. And then that 20th verse, which is a verse that the Lord has given me great pleasure with, and I want you to have great pleasure from it. For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. These three men preaching the gospel got to preach the promises of God, which is what the gospel is. It's good news and glad tidings of the promises of God, 
And those promises are all certain and sure in the yea and amen that executes them. Because God has committed all things to the Son. And so it's this man, Christ Jesus, that executes at the will of God for us. And all the promises of God are sure and final. It was a blessing yesterday to be here with our quiz teams for half of their day or a part of their day with them. And to hear them referring to verses out of the first three chapters of the Gospel of John. And I appreciated some of those verses, like John 3, 35. The Father loveth the Son, and hath committed all things into His hands. Right. And it's the same thing is said in 13, 3 of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And we rejoice in verses like that, in statements like that, and that's what we want to do. When we look at verse 20, for all the promises of God in Him, God's promises are in Jesus Christ made sure, because God has committed all things into His hands. And we don't want to forget that. Look at Psalm 2. We'll come back to, well, you've got 2 Corinthians 1 in your mind now, and you can see verse 20 in front of you, can't you? For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, under the glory of God by us. Look at Psalm 2. Some of you were able to read that last evening. I got an email late last night after I had gone to bed. I go to bed so early on Saturday evenings, but I get up early on Sunday mornings, and there was that wonderful email waiting for me from a young man out of his mind. Out of his mind with joy and praise. And Psalm 2 was one of the places that he made reference to. Very quickly, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Everything you read in the press, everything you hear about mankind, including the United States of America, they rage and they imagine vain stuff. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Here's God's response. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Amen. It doesn't matter what you conspire. It doesn't matter that you perspire. God put Jesus Christ on his throne. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Of course, this is most specifically and in detail fulfilled by Pilate and Herod conspiring together against the Lord Jesus Christ with the leadership of the Jews. And God laughed at them and then vexed them in his sore displeasure when 40 years later, according to the promise of Jesus Christ and all the Old Testament prophets back to Moses, he sent the Roman armies under Titus Vespasian Caesar to level that city to the ground in the worst tribulation the world has ever seen or ever will see. Right. One million died in that siege as he fulfilled this prophecy the Lord shall have them in derision, speak unto them in his wrath, vex them in his sore displeasure, because he had set Jesus as king. And we love Jesus as king. And the Jews should have submitted to Jesus as king. 
He was their king. Do you remember Pilate? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in three languages. And the Jews came and said, take that down and change it. He said he was the king of the Jews. And for a moment, I like Pilate, for a moment, he said, what I have written, I have written. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He was king. And so Psalm 2 tells us about the man Christ Jesus and the wonderful words of this psalm. These verses are fantastically glorious about him. I will declare the decree in verse 7, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So many are confused about that statement right there. This wasn't the birth of Jesus. This wasn't the eternal generation of Jesus. This is the resurrection, ascension, and coronation of Jesus. Because that's when God declared to the universe, this is my son. Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. When he raised him from the dead, that declared him to be the son of God with power, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. So many misunderstand this verse. Paul used it in Acts chapter 13 and said it applies to the resurrection. Paul used it in Hebrews chapter 1 and it applied to Jesus obtaining a more excellent inheritance than the angels by being declared to the universe the Son of God. And the angels had to report to him. Jesus Christ was put far above all principality, power, thrones, might, and dominion, and every name that is named in this world and in the world to come. From Psalm 2, it's wonderful. Kiss Kiss the Son. My brethren, let's all kiss the Son this morning in that 12th verse. Let's kiss the Son and humble ourselves before Him. Now look at Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9. You know verse 6. I know verse 6. I knew verse 6. I learned it as a child. Many of you learned it as a child. Those of you that have ever heard Handel's Messiah know Isaiah 9, 6. But there's more than just verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Oh, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Don't forget verse 7. Right of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That seventh verse is a glorious declaration of the kingly reign and monarchical authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. His government and the peace of his government, because he'll vanquish all foes and destroy all enemies, would last forever. It's a tremendous verse. And upon the throne of David, and he's been on that throne of David for 2,000 years now. And Oh, the verses of the Bible just pour in together. Like Acts chapter 15, when they had to have that big church council at Jerusalem, To answer the question, what do converted Gentiles have to do out of the law of Moses? And so they heard from Peter about the conversion of Cornelius' household. Then they heard from Paul and Barnabas about all the Gentiles converted on their first preaching trip. And then James, 
took over the meeting and by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost appeals to the book of Amos and says, this is the fulfillment of this promise that I will build again the tabernacle of David out of Gentiles. Amen. Oh, brethren, we're part of the tabernacle of David, right. the kingdom of David today. It's been here for 2000 years. Jesus is our king and we converted Gentiles are part of that kingdom. The son of David is on his throne. All of that is to say, God put the authority of the government of his kingdom on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, a man. Jesus would say before he left this earth to his apostles, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Amen. Now there's one exception. What's the one exception? God himself. Right. And see, in most places, it doesn't even say that. You're just supposed to understand it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says it, that God is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, accepted from all things being under the feet of Christ, but everything else, all angels and principalities, Michael and Satan, under the feet of Jesus Christ. Because right. God committed all things into his hands. And so, when we look at that verse, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. It's unto God's glory because he designed the whole drama, but it's in Jesus Christ, and he has never failed. He is not failing right now, and he will never fail. Amen. Nor will he ever forsake you. Right. Nor will he ever lose one of us, elect given to him. And so we are as safe and sound as can possibly be. We should just celebrate instead of worrying, right. instead of fussing. We should just celebrate and thank the Lord for sending Jesus Christ for us. He will not fail nor be discouraged. Do you remember that? Since you're in Isaiah, look at 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Hold me back from wanting to get back into preaching Isaiah to you. Verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, whom I uphold mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, for sending your servant for us. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus was no self-promoter. Verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break. And that's about all he gets with me is a bruised reed. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. That's about all the flame I can produce on my own smoke. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Those are places far away from Israel. And here we are. We've waited for his law. His law has come to us. And we're here to hear a little bit more about his law today. Right. Well, that's enough of that uh, for the moment. Jesus is the yes of our religion. God has promised. Christ has worked. All is certain. Jesus is the amen of our faith. God promised. He died. Heaven is truly, verily, ours. There's no uncertainty or things left to doubt in our religion. All is certain in Jesus Christ. Bad men are false. Good men can be fickle. God and Christ are perfectly reliable forever. Jesus often used, especially in the Gospel of John, uniquely in the Gospel of John, a unique double affirmative. Verily, verily. 
of a truth, of a truth. Absolutely, truly, absolutely, truly. Verily, verily. The veracity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his religion. 25 times we have that unique double affirmative in the Gospel of John. While the world's foundations crumble, Jesus is sure forever. He upholds and maintains the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ upholds everything by the word of his power. What makes the world go round, as some ask? Our Lord Jesus does pure and simple. Jesus cannot and will not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8. He is faithful and true. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 to find out about this yea and amen. Yea is a final positive answer and amen is truly, verily. But let's look at Revelation chapter 3 so that we can see something about this, how the Lord Jesus Christ is named for his faithfulness. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Revelation 3, 7, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. There's David's authority again. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. He that is true. So we can say all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yea and in him amen because of the truth, the truthfulness of the one fulfilling them. And then verse 14 of this chapter, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen. Jesus is called the amen. Jesus is the certain final true one. Jesus is verily and indeed the, 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 very, the, veracity, the, the, the veracity of one. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted with these terms for us to take confidence that God has committed all things into his hands, but those hands are the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, and we need not fear anything. David's entire confidence and desire at death was in the yea and amen. David knew that he had a messed up, dysfunctional family. And so on his deathbed, and it says these be the last words of David in 2 Samuel 23, on his deathbed he pulled the oxygen hose away, and his final words were, as he described his son that was coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he described him in glorious metaphorical terms of a brilliantly shining day and how grass springs out of the earth after rain when the sun shines on it. It's just beautiful. And then he says, Although my house be not so with God, I don't have any sons like this son, I, like this king I just described to you. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Right. It overlooked my children that I had sitting with me at my breakfast table. But there is one coming that's going to sit on my throne forever. This is all my salvation. It's all my desire. As long as that one promised by God sits on my throne. That's, that's all I need. And that's how David ended his life in 2 Samuel 23. 
There's not even a shadow of turning with God or His Son. God's gifts and calling are without repentance. There sits in heaven at this hour the most faithful and glorious man for your eternal confidence. We cannot see him and his army of angels, but they are more real than any enemy we have. Right. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. This is the 13th point of this series of messages that I want to make to you about Jesus being the yea and amen of our religion and our faith. And this one is, Jesus is our surety with God like a lawyer on retainer. A surety guarantees another's obligations or performance like Judah did for Benjamin. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph understanding the family's dynamics better than they thought that he should. He said, when you, go, when you try to visit me the second time for food, I expect you to bring your little brother Benjamin with you. Oh, they were terrified about that because they knew that uh, Jacob wasn't going to let Benjamin go. So they, but they got hungry. And when you get hungry, you'll do a lot of things you weren't planning on doing earlier. And so they said, Judah said to his dad, Jacob, listen, if we don't leave now, they are going to know that we have delayed our return and they will begin to doubt us again. Send Benjamin with me. I will be surety for him. If anything happens to him, you may hold the blame against me forever. I don't preach types and shadows because there's, life is too short and the New Testament is too long without types and shadows. But when Judah said that, it was a pretty wonderful statement about little Benjamin. Right. I will bring him back or let all the blame be against me forever. That's what a surety is. A surety is a person who undertakes some specific responsibility on behalf of another who remains primarily liable. One who makes himself liable for the default or miscarriage of another or for the performance of some act on his part, the payment of a debt, appearance in court, so forth. A surety. A priest is a surety in things pertaining to God. I turned you to Hebrews chapter 7 because Hebrews chapter 7 is the number one priesthood chapter in the Bible. And I want you to see verse 22. Hebrews 7, 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The New Testament is better than the Old Testament. The Old Testament was do and live. If you do it, you'll live. The New Testament is live and do. He goes ahead and gives us the life first and we obey. But the surety of this New Testament is the Lord Jesus. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And if you were to back up through those verses, which I'm not going to do, which I've preached to you not too long ago from Hebrews chapter 7, you will find aspects of the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek being very superior to the priesthood of Aaron under the tribe of Levi. Right. And so it says, by so much, that's all the arguments Paul's brought to bear in the first 21 verses, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. The Bible uses words as synonyms for surety, like advocate, counselor, daysman, that's one from the book of Job, mediator, intercessor. A problem with lawyers in most cases is they expect to get paid no matter the result. 
Our Lord Jesus only gets paid with the result. And he knew he was going to win. That, that's why it says, for the joy that was set before him. That's the payday that was set before him. He despised the cross and the troubles of it because he knew that crown was coming in heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ completely fails. He loses his eternal crown and throne with a single loss. But he will not have a single loss. Amen. Because this is God's drama for the glory of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we study the book of Proverbs, and when we look at the, the, the 915 verses in that book, we see a lot of warnings about the risk of surety-ship. And it warns us over and over, don't co-sign loans unless you absolutely have to. Because why should somebody come and take away your bed? Because if... This is Solomon to his son. Guess what young princes like to do? They like to throw their weight around. And so they could go to any bank, and as long as their friend said, look, I've got Rehoboam here. He'll sign for me. You know, Rehoboam would be a pretty big sneeze among all his basketball buddies and video gamers because they would all have this king's son that could co-sign for them. And so Solomon knew that was a real threat to his son. He says, if you sign too many co-sign too many loans, or you're a surety for too many people, eventually those are contingent liabilities and they could come to bear on you. And so there's warnings over and over in the book of Proverbs. Now this is the God that doesn't believe in suretyship. But he assigned a surety for me and I thank him that he did. Amen. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ stood up and said, I'll take his debt. Father, I'll pay his debt. You can all say this with me. I'll take his debt and I'll pay it off for him. And so when it says surety here, I want you to understand that the Bible warns against suretyship, and yet God designed Jesus to be the surety for our eternal inheritance. Guaranteeing obligations or performance of others along with your own is dangerous. The other person or persons may not pay, Saddling you with debts you cannot pay. But the God of heaven that condemned surety ship among men did so with his son. In Psalm 15 and verse 4, it says that a real surety promises to his hurt and pays anyway. See, a man that's really true, a man that's really faithful, when he makes a promise, when he makes a vow, when he becomes a surety, even as time passes and it comes to the point of payment, if the payment is richer, worse, harder than he thought it was going to be, he pays anyway. That's the character of a righteous man. Psalm 15 and verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ found out in the Garden of Gethsemane what it was going to take to have co-signed me. That's not even fair. He signed. I didn't know how to sign. He signed for me, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, he found out what he was going to have to pay. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And I've, I've made this point to you before, but I want you to understand that our yea and amen is altogether true and faithful. And when he realized in the Garden of Gethsemane what he was going to have to do, and three times he asked his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me that Jonathan Crosby has brought to bear on my life. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Right. 
That is a surety. That is our Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He didn't back down. And as soon as he had made that commitment to his father, he stood up, woke up his sleeping disciples for the third time, and went out to meet the angry mob. That's how sure our surety is. Look with me at Romans chapter 5 at a point that I make rather often because I want you to learn it and remember it. That Jesus is alive right now doing something. He's doing something for you as a great surety. We should understand the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for the sins of the elect. Jesus didn't die for all men. That's a blasphemous joke. If he had, why are they in hell paying for their sins the second time? And on and on and on the arguments go for the doctrine of particular redemption. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, so the first half of verse 10 tells us, the death of Jesus Christ reconciled us to God, who had been enemies, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there's our surety. Our surety not only died on the cross after Gethsemane and taking all the difficulty of that transaction to reconcile us, He's now in heaven at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. So the apostle, no one loved the death of Jesus Christ more than the apostle Paul, but he would say here and in chapter 8, he would say much more. Jesus died, but much more. There's another aspect to redemption that we should never forget nor neglect nor demote. Much more. We shall be saved by his life. That's his intercessory life as a surety reminding God in heaven of what he had done for us. The same thing is said in chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that no one can condemn us in Christ? It is Christ that died. Notice again the apostles' choice of words. It is Christ that died. No one loved the death of Jesus more than the apostle Paul. But here he says, yea, rather. In addition to death, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So complete is the package of Jesus Christ being our Savior, that he died for us, and he's in heaven interceding for us. His death reconciled us. His life will certainly save us, because he's not going to let a single one of us go. He is the yea, and he is the amen of the promise of eternal life that was made before the world began. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. The Arminian scheme makes salvation only as sure as your decision to invite Jesus into your heart, which is found nowhere in the Bible at all. But anyway, that Arminian scheme that I grew up with makes salvation only as sure as your decision to invite Jesus into your heart. All the grace and power of God was exerted as much for those in hell as those in heaven. So who's the surety? In the Arminian scheme, who's the surety for salvation? I become the surety. Because then I have to make sure that I've really invited him into my heart. And and remembering back in the day, I did it about every day. Because I wanted to make sure, because I was my own surety. And so it's a problem, and it's problematic. Because what if I didn't invite him in sincerely enough? I'm going to hell. 
Because the death of Jesus didn't get the job done. The love of God didn't get the job done. The so-called wooing of the Holy Spirit didn't get the job done. So what's going to get the job done? My sureness. My sureness in doing something. But I have a surety. And he never fails. And whether, I don't know how sincere I was at three years of age when I invited Jesus into my heart for the first time which isn't taught in the Bible, let me say that again. When the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That verse doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. That's written to the church at Laodicea for fellowship. That's because that church thought they were great and powerful, mighty, and clothed with riches, but they needed fellowship with Jesus Christ. And he said, you're blind, naked, wretched, and poor. You need to have a relationship with me. And so I stand at the door and knock. That was, a, that was a verse about fellowship with a church. Their assurance comes by a date of their choice. My salvation assurance comes by a date and a choice as well. Yes. It's God's choice right. before the foundation of the world. That's the date. Amen. That's the date, and it's God's choice. Right. Or we have to remake that choice over again. I look at one of my brothers in this church. We sat at Bob Jones University together many decades ago. We were willing to go forward just about any time because we wanted to make sure. I'm just, I, how many of you in the Arminian scheme invited Jesus into your heart more than once? Why'd you do it more than once? Because you weren't sure. Uh, gotcha. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is sure. Absolutely sure. Right. Jesus is our yea and amen. And there's no probability of being lost. Springing from that point to, to this one very easily, look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus, the yea and amen of our religion, committed to lose none of those God gave him. Oh, thank you, Lord, that we have a surety that decla will declare openly, I will not lose a single one. He doesn't say, I could lose. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to give it my best shot. <coughs> we'll see how many I'm able to reel in, reel in. No, no, no. Here's how it's worded in John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6, 37. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's how I was taught the verse. That's how I memorized the verse. John 6, 37. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Is there a problem? Yeah. You're all looking at me like there's a problem. I did that because I want you to think about the whole verse. I want you to think about the first half of the verse. Right. Because the first half of the verse is more important than the second half of the verse. Because without the first half of the verse, there is no second half of the verse. John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And amen. He is our yea and amen. And he was bold when he was on earth to declare that I will not lose one of them that the Father has given me. That's John chapter 6. Flip over a few pages to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10, 26. 
but, but ye are not of my sheep because ye believe not. No. John 10, 26, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Amen. The yea and amen is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've got them in my hand. We're in the father's hand. I give unto them eternal life. My father gave them to me. It's all wrapped up in our yea and amen. Right. It's a wonderful doctrine to preach. The Apostle Paul was privileged to preach it, many between him and me. And it's a wonderful doctrine to preach the, the surety of the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of Jesus' commitment not to lose a single one of those God gave him. So when you look at John chapter 10, verse 29, my Father which gave them me, that's the same as John chapter 6, the Father gave, it's His Father's will that of all which He hath given me, I should raise them up. Verse 28, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. Who are they? The ones that the Father gave me. They're the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what John chapter 10 is about. Come over a few more pages to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and here's Jesus speaking to the Father. Oh, remember the, it's, I know it's been a few years already since we went through the Gospel of John, but... Do you remember the intimacy of John chapter 12 through 17? Mm -hmm. the, the final minutes and hours of the Lord's life from 12 through 17? On, on the road from Jerusalem to Bethany? He's out there. They stood in a circle and listened to him pray to the Father about them in John ch chapter 17. Verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. There is the authority of eternal life and judgment given to Jesus Christ, and you've given me authority to give eternal life to those elect that you gave me. It's now time for me to do that. I'm going to go to the cross for my elect, and I'm going to lay down my life for them, and I will give them eternal life. Glorify me to get through this in a way that brings glory to thee. So, remember? I know it's been a long time, but I don't want us to forget. Our great yea and amen. God gave Jesus power over all men to give eternal life to those that God had given him. Right. What would this glorious choice be worth if not for the faithful one to guarantee it? Right. What if God had chosen men and given them to Christ and then Christ was unfaithful in the performance of the obligation necessary to give them eternal life? But that is not the case. That's right. Jesus went and he, with the full realization of how difficult it was going to be. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We were there earlier looking at verse 34. Let's come back to it and look at just the first verse. Romans 8. God will not condemn any that are in Christ Jesus. It's impossible. Can't happen. Won't happen. 
And so it says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And you know what Romans chapter 8 is like. Romans chapter 8 is one of the favorite chapters of Christians. Because it gets all the way to the end of Romans chapter 8 with verses 38 and 39, that there's nothing, neither life nor death, and it lists 10 things that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it starts off right here. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him amen, amen, unto the glory of God by us. The Apostle Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, Silas, and Timotheus, Timothy, got to preach that glorious message. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Look at Romans 28. Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You'd be looking for a long time trying to find Romans chapter 28. Chapter 8 and verse 28. This is a favorite verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Everything works together for good to those that are in the purpose of God. And 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now you look at verse 28, and I've already mentioned verse 39, and in between are some of the best verses in the Bible, 12 verses of them, promising all the goodness that God can possibly put together the package of benefits for his elect children. But I want you to notice that in verse 32, we have the guarantee of it. Romans 8, 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, he delivered him over to the Jews and the Romans, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That is a logical statement that is so powerful and weighty on which you can rest your time in this world and eternal life in the world to come. He that spared not his own son. If God delivered up his son for us, if God turned his son over to tormentors and torturers and a crucifixion death for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? I know these are simple verses. Listen, when I preached through Isaiah recently, and it's 1,282 verses, those verses you didn't know very well. These verses you know. But I'm going over them again because I want you to view them through the performance of the Lord Jesus Christ as the yea and the amen of all the things God has in His will for us. Amen. You know, it was three weeks ago when I had to preach to you, when I got to preach to you from Hebrews chapter 9, that a will, a last will and testament, which is how God describes the, the New Testament of benefits for His children, can only go into force when the testator dies. A will, no matter how carefully it's signed, no matter how carefully it's documented, no matter how many witnesses it has, Hebrews 9 tells us a will is of no force at all while the testator still lives. Well, Jesus died to put it into force. And so there's a will for us to inherit the universe, joint heirs with the Son of God, Jesus Here's, and here's what it hinges upon. Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his own son, if God turned his son over to those Roman soldiers and delivered him up for us all, 
How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so you can rest on the fact that the yea and the amen of God's transaction with us is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father loveth the Son. Here's what a brother came to my office this week to tell me, that I hadn't got the full message from the words, the Father loveth the Son. I looked at the words, the Father loveth the Son, and I reason, if the Father loves the Son, I want to love the Son so that I can please the Father. And that is in John chapter 5, about verse 23. But this brother wanted to come to me and say, uh-huh, that's only part of it. The other part of the story is this. The Father loveth the Son, John 3.35, John 13.3. The Father loveth the Son, and he delivered up his Son for me. Right. He must really love me a lot. And what do you think I said? Amen. Amen. Yes, thank you, brother, for coming to tell me that. This week. And one other point that I want to make, and I put it in a pastoral email to you. There's a third thing to remember. The Father loveth the Son, and those that neglect the Son should be terrified out of their wits. Right. So that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 16, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha cursed at the coming of Christ. What a Savior we have. God must freely give all things to us in Christ Jesus. Can you see that right there in Romans 8.32? If He delivered up Jesus for us, everything else is easy for Him to give us to inherit the universe. One final point before our break. Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I thank the Lord for Romans chapter 5. I hope that you love Romans 5. I know I was just talking about Romans 8. I was just talking about Psalm 45. I hope that we love the whole Bible. And the biggest difficulty we have is, which chapter do I like the most? Romans 5. This is the doctrine of imputation. Nowhere could the yea and the amen... Well, I just said that about Romans 8.32... If God delivered up Jesus for us all, how shall he not? It's logically dependent that since he gave his son, that's arguing from the greater to the lesser, everything else he gives us has to come along for the ride, which is to inherit the universe. That's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God gave his son, he's certainly going to give us justification, eternal life, and everything else that's promised to those that are his children. Romans chapter 5 comes at it from a different angle and that is the performance of Jesus Christ. It's called the doctrine of imputation. Imputation means that things are assigned to another by the performance of the first. A's performance is assigned to B. That's the doctrine of imputation. In the Bible, the words that are used are impute, account, count, and reckon. Those are the four Bible verbs, meaning the performance of A is assigned to be. Now to make it very simple, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and he hath made him to be sin for us. So my sin was imputed to Jesus. But that's not all the verse says. You know, some people like to say, what's a simple definition for justification? Well, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Oh, no, 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 no. Just as if you'd never sinned? Well, you're not going to heaven. 
That isn't good enough to get into heaven, just as if I'd never sinned. You need to be perfectly righteous to get into heaven because God is perfectly righteous. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So real justification is my sins were imputed to Christ, charged to his account. His righteousness was assigned to me. That is wonderful. And it's in Romans 5. Romans 5 compares two Adams. Why are you going to die? Adam sinned first. Adam sinned. Which, which pushes me to the question, why do babies die? Babies die because of Adam's sin. Right. The wages of sin is death. Babies die because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin changed the world. Changed everyone. It's the doctrine of imputation. Right. God made a deal with Adam that what you do here in the Garden of Eden is going to be applied to all of your descendants. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, in that one man Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before there was a law to condemn men to death. Death reigned. How, there, how did it reign? Because of one man's sin. So it says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It's verses 12 through 19. Imputa- the doctrine of imputation. Our first father, Adam, cost our race life and brought a threefold death upon us. And it's by imputation. A person that has never heard about Adam, never heard about Genesis 3, never heard about Romans 5, do they still die? They do. Why? Because of the doctrine of imputation. God assigning the performance of A, being the first Adam, to B, the other 75 billion of the human family over the last 6,000 years. And that is the doctrine of imputation. And that's the doctrine that Paul's going through right here in these verses 12 through 19. But there is a second Adam. And the second Adam obeyed for us. Instead of disobeying and bringing death, the second Adam obeyed and brought life. So that it says in verse 19, for as. This comparison in English, look at verse 19. It's got two clauses. And the first one starts with as, the second one starts with so, as, so, in the very same way. For as, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, we were made sinners by Adam's single sin of disobedience in Eden, so, in the very same way, by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. And that is how we are made righteous, by imputation. Jesus died on the cross after living a perfect life, rose from the dead, and that was assigned to me and to you as the elect of God that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's the doctrine of imputation so that we can say, with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us, because Jesus obeyed for me, and it is his obedience that gets me into heaven. It's his obedience that made me righteous. It's the first Adam's disobedience that made me a sinner. And there there it is. The doctrine of imputation certainly fulfills and certainly confirms 2 Corinthians 1.20. You're close at hand. Romans 8, not, not another point. 
just this statement. Romans 8.1, put it this way, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand with Romans 5 coming in front of Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation because Jesus obeyed for us. So there's no condemnation because we're in Christ Jesus. But how do we know that we're in Christ Jesus? Second half of verse 1 of Romans 8, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That is the evidence that you're a child of God. That is the evidence that you're one of God's elect. Are you walking after the Spirit or are you walking after the flesh? What do you mind? Philippians chapter, this, this also tells us here in verse 6, to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. What do you think about the most what drives you? As our brother asked this morning when he presented a psalm, what is your cause? What is your cause? If your cause is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and the service of his people, then you're walking in the spirit. You're walking after the spirit. You're not walking after the flesh. If your cause is to make money, get married, have kids, have a nice big house, a bigger house, and then a bigger house because you're an American, that's being earthly minded and worldly minded and carnally minded. And you don't have the evidence that you're in Romans 8.1. The real evidence of Romans 8.1 is walking after the spirit and doing the things the spirit teaches in the word of God and divorcing ourselves from the world as much as we can. We have to live in it, but it's not our goal, and we don't flirt with it, and we don't befriend it, because if we make ourselves friends of the world, we're the enemies of God, James 4, 4. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk after the Spirit, and you can know that you're in Romans 8, 1. If you're in Romans 8, 1, then you're in Romans 8, 32. If you're in Romans 8, 32, 8, 28 applies to you, and so does 38 and 39, and so does Romans 5 and everything else we've covered. So let's help each other walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.